1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everybody and welcome to The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show we're going to be talking about Frank Lucas, one of the most infamous drug traffickers of the 1970s. He came up under the tutelage of another notorious Harlem criminal named Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, became one of the first gangsters in the area to bypass the mafia and get his drugs straight from the source, and built his drug gang known as the Cowboys into one of the largest drug trafficking operations running in New York at the time. But without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Frank Lucas was born on September 9th, 1930 in LaGrange, North Carolina to Fred and Mahaley Lucas, but would grow up about 150 miles away in the city of Greensboro, North Carolina. However, Frank's childhood was pretty abhorrent from the start. He grew up in rural North Carolina during the depths of the Great Depression. Many Americans in the rural South were poor at the time, but African Americans suffered the worst poverty. But more than that, Lucas spent most of his early life looking after his younger siblings and getting into trouble. Also, living in the Jim Crow South took a huge toll on him, and it was the blatant racism he experienced early on in life that made him turn to crime. According to Lucas, he was first inspired to enter a life of crime after he witnessed members of the Ku Klux Klan murder his 12-year-old cousin Obadiah when he was just 6 years old. The Klan claimed that Obadiah had quote-unquote eyeballed a white woman, so they fatally shot him. And it was then Lucas says that he began his life of crime, with him later saying, quote, I was the oldest. Someone had to put food on the table. I started stealing chickens, knocking pigs on their head. It wasn't too long that I was going over to LaGrange and mugging drunks when they came out the whorehouse. They'd spent their five or six dollars buying ass and head jobs, then I'd be waiting with a rock in my hand, a tobacco rack, anything. By the time he was 12, Lucas says he was in Knoxville, Tennessee, locked up on a chain gang, and in Lexington, Kentucky, not yet 14, he lived with a lady bootlegger. In 1946, at the age of 16, in Wilson, North Carolina, working as a truck driver at a pipe company, he started sleeping with the owner's daughter, and this of course led to problems when the owner caught them in the act. In the ensuing fight, Frank hit the owner on the head with a piece of pipe, laying him out. He then stole $400 from the company till and burned down the business. Before long, his mother told him to get out of town, fearing that her son would either be imprisoned for life or lynched, at which point Lucas began making his way north, eventually arriving in New York, thinking that he could make more money in the Big Apple. Lucas later said, quote, I got to 34th Street, Penn Station, then took the bus to 14th Street. I went over to a policeman and said, hey, this ain't 14th Street. I want to go where all the black people are. He said, you want to go to Harlem, 114th Street. As soon as Lucas settled in Harlem, a neighborhood in Upper Manhattan, he dove headfirst into a life of crime, and within a few months, he was a one-man hell-bent crime wave. He stuck up the Hollywood Bar in Lenox and 116th, making off of $600. He then went to Bush Jewelers on 125th Street, stole a tray of diamonds, and broke the guard's jaw with brass knuckles on the way out. A little later, he ripped off a high roller craps game at the Big Track Club on 110th, with Lucas later recalling, quote, They was all gangsters in there. Cool breeze, a lot of them. I walked in, took their money, now they was all looking for me. And even though Frank was treading thin ice after robbing some of the biggest gangsters in Harlem, when he went on his next caper, he then met the man who would change his life forever. Lucas later said, quote, I was hustling up at Lump's Pool Room on 134th Street. Eight ball in that. So in comes Ice Pick Red. Red, he was a tall motherfucker. Clean with a hat. A fierce killer from the heart. Freelanced mafia hits. Anyway, he took out a roll of money that must have been that high. My eyes got big. I knew right then that wasn't none of his money. That was my money. 
Who got a thousand dollars to shoot pool? Icepick Red shouted. I told him I'm playing, but I only got a hundred dollars. And he's saying, what kind of punk only got a hundred dollars? I wanted to take out my gun and kill him right there. Take his damn money. Except right then, everything seemed to stop. The jukebox stopped. The pool ball stopped. Everything fucking stopped. It got so quiet, you could have heard a rat piss on a piece of cotton from China. I turned around and I saw this guy. He was like five feet ten, five feet eleven. Dark complexion. Neat. Looked like he just stepped off the back cover of Vogue magazine. He had on a gray suit and a maroon tie with a gray overcoat and a flower in the lapel. I never seen nothing that looked like him. He was another species altogether. Can you beat him? He said to me in a deep, smooth voice. I said, I can shoot pool with anybody, mister. I can beat anybody. Ice pick red. Suddenly he's nervous. Scared. Bumpy, he shouts out. I don't got no bet with you. Bumpy ignores that. We rolled for the break and I got it. And I wasted him. Ice pick red never got a goddamn shot. Bumpy sat there, watching. Didn't say a word. Then he says to me, come on, let's go. I'm thinking, who the fuck is this Bumpy? But something told me I better keep my damn mouth shut. I got in the car, a long caddy. First we stopped at a clothing store. He picked out a bunch of stuff for me. Suits, ties, slacks, nice stuff. Then he drove to where he was living on Mount Morris Park. He took me into his front room, said I should clean myself up, sleep there that night. I wound up sleeping there six months. Then things were different. The gangster stopped fucking with me. The cops stopped fucking with me. I walk into Bush Jewelers, see the man I robbed, and all he says is, Can I help you, sir? Because now I'm with Bumpy Johnson. A Bumpy Johnson man. I'm 17 years old and I'm Mr. Lucas. Bumpy was a gentleman among gentlemen. A king among kings. A killer among killers. A whole book and bible by himself. He saw something in me, I guess. He showed me the ropes, how to collect, to figure the vig. Back then, if you wanted to do business in Harlem, you paid Bumpy or you died. Extortion, I guess you could call it. Everyone had to pay, except the mom and pop stores. Born in 1905, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson came up under very similar circumstances as Lucas. He was originally from Charleston, South Carolina, but during his formative years, his family moved north to Harlem. By his 30th birthday, Johnson had spent almost half of his life in prison. During those periods of incarceration, he got into constant clashes with other inmates and guards, which resulted in him spending more than three years of a 10-year sentence for burglary and solitary confinement. Because of his difficult and abrasive attitude, Johnson was transferred to various prisons until his release in 1932, and upon his release from prison, he was financially destitute and desperate for employment. So in the early 1930s, Johnson became an associate of crime boss Stephanie St. Clair, who dominated the numbers racket in Harlem. He quickly earned her trust and became her top lieutenant. Johnson and St. Clair even attempted to wage a feudal war against New York crime boss Dutch Schultz, with the fight between St. Clair and Schultz as well as other organized crime factions in the early 1930s resulting in over 40 murders and several kidnappings. And by the time it was over with, Schultz and his allies in the five families eventually began dominating the numbers racket in Harlem. Johnson, who had earlier fought against Schultz and the Mafia, was eventually won over by the promise that he would run the Harlem operations in exchange for protection from the Mafia, an arrangement that would last for the next four decades. And with this absolute heavyweight as his mentor, Frank Lucas was able to get a first-hand glimpse into the highest echelons of organized crime while working as Johnson's driver and bodyguard. For instance, Frank once drove Johnson downtown to the 57th Street Diner or waited by the car while his boss ate breakfast with Frank Costello. Frank even accompanied Bumpy to Cuba to see Lucky Luciano. However, things were about to take a turn, and on July 7th, 1968, while under a federal indictment for drug conspiracy, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson died of congestive heart failure at the age of 62. And at the age of 38, after learning everything he could from Johnson over the last 15 years, Lucas had huge aspirations and immediately began paving his own way to the top of the local organized crime scene, specifically the drug game. The death of Bumpy Johnson left the control of Harlem up for grabs, so Lucas recruited a crew of lieutenants from down south, anchored by several of his brothers and cousins, and took the opportunity to seize as much territory as he could. But after Bumpy's death, Lucas wanted more than that. He was bored of all the same old rackets and began looking for a new source of income. Lucas later said, quote, There wasn't going to be no next Bumpy. Bumpy believed in all that share of the wealth. I wanted all the money for myself. Harlem was boring to me then. Numbers, protection, those little pieces of paper flying out of your pocket. I wanted adventure. I wanted to see the world. And Lucas's big 
plan was again to the expansive New York City drug trade, but he had learned from his mentor. He realized that to take over Johnson's operation, he needed to break the monopoly the Italian mafia held on the drug game, and his idea was to bypass the mafia's heroin trade in Harlem by going directly to the source of the drug. By 1968, the Vietnam War had been raging on for several years, and it was common knowledge that U.S. service personnel had been exposed to many different illegal drugs, including heroin, so when they came back on the streets with their addictions, they sought out new sources. By the late 1960s and early 1970s, dope was rampant in most large American cities with brand names like Mean Machine and Harlem Hijack. Lucas knew he could meet the demand and make a heavy profit if he could get the drugs directly from the source, so he decided to travel to Southeast Asia. The Golden Triangle region of Southeast Asia is an area of about 150,000 square miles which includes parts of Burma, China, Laos, and Thailand and provides ideal conditions for opium cultivation which began during the 16th and early 17th centuries. Until World War II, the opium economy rested largely on the sale of raw and cooked opium. Heroin, the crystalline hydrochloride precipitated from opium, became a major factor in the opium trade only after the Second World War. With the growth of Chinese addiction to smoking heroin, Rus developed for moving heroin to the Chinese communities in Hong Kong and other parts of the world, and this gradually internationalized the Golden Triangle drug trade. But the Vietnam War drastically changed the situation. There was a huge demand for heroin by the U.S. troops in Indochina. Thus, the opium economy of the Golden Triangle region underwent a major structural change and became a thriving heroin economy, in addition to growing at about a thousand tons or 20 million pounds of raw opium every single year. So knowing there was an insane amount of product out there for the taking, Frank just needed to find the source. Lucas later said, quote, I needed to find my own supply. That's when I decided to go to Southeast Asia because the war was going on and people were talking about GIs getting strung out over there. I knew if the shit is good enough to string out GIs, then I can make myself a killing. Lucas, traveling alone, had never been to South East Asia, but he felt confident, saying, quote, Because I knew it was a street thing over there, you see, I never went to school before, but I got a PhD in the street. When it comes to a street atmosphere, I know I'm going to make it out. After checking into the Dusit Tawny Hotel in Bangkok, Thailand, Lucas soon hailed a taxi to take him to Jack's American Star Bar, a hangout for black soldiers in the area. The bar was run by a former U.S. Army sergeant named Leslie Ike Atkinson, a man from Goldsboro, North Carolina, who just so happened to be married to one of Frank's cousins, which made him as good as family. With Lucas saying, quote, Ike knew everyone over there, every black guy in the army, from the cooks on up, and it was this army within the army that would serve as Frank's international distribution system, moving heroin shipments almost exclusively on military planes bound for bases on the eastern seaboard. Atkinson agreed to supply Lucas with the heroin, but Lucas wanted to see the operations for himself, so the two men traveled for nearly two weeks through the jungles of Thailand until they located Atkinson's main connection and business partner, a Chinese Thai man named Luechi Rubawa who controlled several hundred acres of poppy fields in the Golden Triangle. The poppy fields were caves bordered to the mountains where the plants were then processed into heroin. On Lucas's first trip, he bought 132 kilos of 98% pure heroin known as Blue Magic Heroin for $4,200 apiece, whereas in Harlem he would have paid $50,000 a kilo to buy it from the Mafia. Afterwards, Lucas and Atkinson had to create an army within the army made up of draftees and enlisted men in order to set up an international distribution system. Key military personnel had to be bought into the system, including high-ranking officers both American and South Vietnamese. The plan was to send shipments of heroin on military planes to military bases on the eastern seaboard. From there, the packages would be sent to accomplices who unpacked the heroin and prepared it for sale. In setting up his organization back in the States, Lucas combined toughness with intelligence, being very careful to make sure every detail was covered. He contracted only trusted 
trusted relatives and close friends from North Carolina because he believed they were less likely to steal from him and inform on him. So he recruited his five younger brothers and moved them to New York. In the city, they became known as the Country Boys and they controlled the territory on 116th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues in Harlem. Lucas approached marketing his product like any entrepreneur by offering value for the right price. Because he was getting almost completely pure heroin directly from the source, he was able to cut the drugs at a higher level, usually between 10 and 12%, while most street heroin was only about 5 to 6%. He hired several young women to mix the imported heroin with mannitol and quinine, and to prevent theft, these women wore nothing but plastic gloves. To protect his investments, Lucas inflicted brutal violence against anyone who stood in his way, instilling fear in adversaries and inspiring respect from friends and business partners. Just as Lucas had planned, the money came pouring in. He often bragged that he was making a million dollars a day, and while that was more than likely an exaggeration, there often wasn't enough space to hide the cash, so he would launder the money personally, driving large bags of money to a bank of the Bronx where the bankers would count it and exchange it for legitimate bills. These bank executives would later plead guilty to 200 misdemeanor violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. At the height of his career, Lucas had over $52 million worth about $400 million today in various Cayman Island banks and a 1,000 kilos of heroin on hand worth about $300,000 a kilo. To hide the exchange money he got from the bank, Lucas bought himself into legitimate businesses such as a string of dry cleaners and gas stations in the hopes of avoiding detection. He also owned office buildings in Detroit, apartments in Los Angeles, Miami, and Puerto Rico, and a several thousand acre ranch called Paradise Valley in North Carolina where he had 300 head of cattle and bulls. Lucas also made the rounds in New York's celebrity circuit. He would often be seen at several of the hottest nightclubs in Manhattan rubbing shoulders with famous athletes like Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali as well as entertainments like James Brown, Barry Gordy, and Diana Ross. He spent money freely, once buying a couple of $140,000 Van Cleef bracelets for both him and his wife, so she bought him a $50,000 chinchilla coat and a $10,000 hat to match. However, most of the time Lucas preferred to dress casually so as not to attract attention to himself. But just as Frank Lucas wouldn't have been able to successfully obtain and transport the heroin from Southeast Asia without the support of corrupt military personnel, he likewise wouldn't have been able to sell the stuff on the streets of Harlem without the help of some corrupt cops. And during the 1960s and 70s, the New York Police Department's Special Investigations Unit was hopelessly corrupt. It had citywide jurisdiction and nearly unlimited authority. The unit had developed a cowboy-like mentality, breaking in and conducting warrantless searches of suspected drug dealers' homes, creating illegal phone tabs, using bribery, and controlled addicted informers with confiscated heroin. And of course, several of the officers in the unit were on the take with local drug dealers to look the other way. At one point, Lucas was caught by the head of the SIU, Bob Lucy, with several kilos of heroin and cocaine in the trunk of his car. According to Lucas, he was taken to the police station where he had to negotiate his release with an offer of $30,000 and two kilos of heroin. This was a common practice and made many New York police officers participants in the very crimes they were supposed to be stopping. In time, the police corruption made national news and the Justice Department wanted it to be stopped. So in 1971, officials in Essex County, New Jersey formed an investigative narcotics unit called the Special Narcotics Task Force headed by then-assistant prosecutor Richard Roberts. Serving as a detective in Essex County since 1963, Roberts was a former U.S. Marine and recent law school graduate from Seton Hall University. He was very street smart and was known as a cop who did whatever he had to do to get the job done, and unlike many of his counterparts in the NYPD, Roberts was incorruptible. So with this uptick in law enforcement's activities surrounding Frank Lucas, it was only a matter of time before they got to him and on January 28, 1975, after a lengthy investigation by the Special Narcotics Task Force, a DEA strike force staged a surprise raid on Frank Lucas's home in the upscale neighborhood of Teaneck, New Jersey. In a panic, Lucas's wife threw several suitcases stuffed with cash out the window. In total, $584,000 were recovered. Also found were keys to several Cayman Island bank safety deposit boxes, property deeds, and a ticket to a United Nations ball, compliments of the ambassador of Honduras. In short order, 10 individuals were arrested, but none of them was Frank Lucas. As yet, there was 
was no evidence to tie Lucas to his drug operation. Then came a huge break in the case when during the interrogation of suspects, Lucas's nephew, a member of the Country Boys gang, broke. He named names, showed investigators where buys were made, and identified public payphones used to make drug deals. Assistant Prosecutor Richard Robertson used the evidence to charge 43 people, many of whom were in Lucas's immediate family, with the crime of drug trafficking. Admittedly, Roberts had a weak case against Lucas, but with the corroboration of the co-defendants, he was able to put enough evidence together to go to trial. At the trial, several people testified about the devastating effects of heroin particularly Lucas's Blue Magic brand of heroin, which was more potent than most other heroin and caused many deaths due to overdose. Roberts even made the case that Lucas had, quote, killed more black people than the KKK with the sale of Blue Magic, and as a result, the jury returned a guilty verdict and Lucas was subsequently sentenced to 70 years in prison. But after a few months, Lucas turned informant and gave the names of various accomplices, including corrupt members of the NYPD. He even gave up Leslie Atkinson, who was his heroin supply connection in Thailand. Lucas's testimony resulted in 150 multi-defendant cases, including three-quarters of New York's DEA and 30 members of his family. As a reward for his information, Lucas's sentence was reduced to 15 years and he was eventually released in 1981. However, he was arrested again in 1984 for trying to exchange an ounce of heroin and $13,000 for a kilo of cocaine. By this time, former assistant prosecutor Richard Roberts had gone into private practice as a defense attorney and upon hearing of his one-time rival's arrest, he contacted Lucas. Even though Lucas had once ordered a $100,000 contract on Roberts' life during the first trial, he was willing to defend Lucas, who accepted. And largely as a result of Robert's efforts, Lucas received a sentence of just seven years, light for a man who had been convicted twice for a similar crime. When he was released from prison again in 1991, Roberts contacted Lucas again and offered his help, this time to get his life straight. Lucas had developed a tepid relationship with Roberts during the post-trial investigation, but now the relationship strengthened as Roberts genuinely believed Lucas was remorseful, and in the process, Roberts became the godfather of Lucas's son. After his final prison release, Lucas returned to a devastated Harlem to witness the poverty and squalor which was caused in part by his former drug business, and for possibly the first time, he began to realize how destructive his enterprise had been to individuals as well as an entire community. Lucas even repented, saying, quote, I did some terrible things. I'm awfully sorry that I did them. I really am. And as a result, he spent the rest of his life working to repair the damage he caused, joining efforts with his daughter's nonprofit organization called Yellow Brick Rose, which provides a safe haven for children of incarcerated parents. But despite turning over a new leaf towards the end of his life, Frank Lucas was never truly able to repair the damage he inflicted and died of natural causes on May 30th, 2019 in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope everybody thoroughly enjoyed today's episode and tunes back in next week for episode 23. If you enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, it'd be great if you could follow, like, and share the podcast, as well as the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. But with that said, I hope everybody has a great rest of their day. This is your host, Blizz Greaves, signing out.